Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 60 with my friend Mike. Oh my gosh, we got to episode 60. Isn't that exciting? Um, 60, 60 interviews. That's nuts. So thank you to Mike for sitting down with me. Uh, Mike is a business owner and has a lot of stuff to say about being a dad and kind of living in the shadow of his own dad and how he how he got out of that and uh, and then we just kind of reminisce about all the times we used to have um, hanging out in fourth grade and seventh grade and and even today being the nerds that we are. So enjoy this interview. I sure enjoyed talking to him. Here's my friend, Mike. What's going on? Hi. Look at that sexy Hi. body. Um, oh, I do. Oh my God! Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's some there's some there's some muscle under the bed. I, I I don't know what guns I'm looking at. The ones in the safe or the ones on your arm? Do you like my gun safe? I keep it there to make sure that the folks know that I can always come after them. I like that it's a background. <laughs> All right. Um. So hi, thank you for <laughs> for doing this. But this is this is one of those interesting interviews for me because. I try to take away everything I already know because I fucked up interviews like that where I've been like, oh, I know your brother and your sister and your mom and your dad. and uh, <laughs> So I'm going to not do that. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start. Well, I start with how I know you. I met you in elementary school. Yes, I think fourth, fourth grade. grade. Fourth, yeah. Because I, I, I actually lived in Indiana. That's what I, I thought grade. it was Indiana. I'm so glad that I was right on that. I don't know why I'm so glad about it. But it's like, well, that's the, that's the Notre Dame connection. I, yeah, grew, yeah. I grew up literally like five miles from Notre Dame. And so, you know, it, it, they got me early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we met in fourth grade. We became fast friends and then had a falling out and then became... And then, and then we were frenemies for a little while. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then we were friends again in junior high. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've just kind of come together, come apart, come apart, coming together uh, over and over. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Judd, it's, it, it, it's all positive memories for me, mostly because you introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons, and it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's still one of the, my favorite things to do whenever I have the chance to do it. Yeah, I do want to get into what the, uh, not, not yet, but uh, <laughs> into like the mainstream. What the mainstream calls now like nerd culture, but you know, we're the original people. Um. <laughs> yeah, back when it wasn't cool, that was us. Yeah. So we're like we're like hipster nerds. Yeah, see, uh, except, uh, except no one respects hipster nerds yeah. because they're just fucking nerds. And <laughs> the, at the end of the day, you're still the comic book store owner in The Simpsons, and that's <laughs> yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Um, but before I knew you, you were born, and you're the you're the middle child, right? You have a younger yes. sister, older sister. Yep. How much older is Sarah? Uh, we're all two years apart. All okay. born in November. Okay, so you don't remember your younger sister being born? No. Because you're no, too she young. Was, uh, it, was, it was too young. I mean, I never I never had a great relationship with either one of mine. Are we, talking, are we on now? Am yeah, I yeah. Now? I'm always okay. recording. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Um, I, uh, I never had a great relationship with either one of my sisters. Uh, we didn't really talk that much. I have very many common interests when uh, when we were growing up, and then uh, you know even as we got older, we just kind of grew apart. I have a better relationship with my older sister now, uh, but I mean I'm in my late thirties now, so basically for for thirty five years of my life, I never never talked to my my sisters. I still talk to my younger sister. Uh, she's she's 
she is obsessed with the idea of childhood trauma and believes that she's being persecuted by the rest of her family. So, oh, you're gonna hate this show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But well, I wonder if that had anything to do with the like dynamic in your house with your parents and and your dad. And it it definitely did uh, because dad, my dad, did not believe that it was his place to raise his daughters. That was mom's place. Yeah. Dad thought it was his place to raise me as his son. So what the, the the net effect of that was is that basically the girls would go off with mom and then I would have to spend all my time with dad. And I, those are correctly chosen words. I would have to spend my time <laughs> with dad. Uh, what did and, your, what did and, your mom... And, yeah, so it was, and, and you know, my, my parents never got along. Uh, yeah. They basically hated each other. For, for years and so uh when uh when they when when my parents decided that uh, they that they were just going to be open about their hatred for each other the girls would take mom's side and then i being a stupid little bastard would take dad's side <laughs> what did your mom and dad do when you were born was your dad already working with wendy's dad dad was at pizza hut i think okay. when i was born uh but yeah so dad was a dad was a manager at pizza hut um Shortly after I was born, he got recruited to go work as a manager at Wendy's. As he recruited, it's basically just like he saw a job ad and said, "Hey, I already do this at Pizza Hut, and I can do it for you." <laughs> what did your mom do? Uh, mom was a stay-at-home mom and has been a stay-at-home mom her entire life. She's an artist now, uh, and when I was growing up, she tried a couple times to start art ventures. But my mom is not a very savvy business person. She, you know, she's a she's a very good artist. She's a very good sculptor. Um, but she, uh, the making things for a market to be sold is not something that she's into. Yeah. She's very much on the artistic integrity side of things. So yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. <I'm sure>. um, <laughs> so you were, what, is that nine or 10 when you moved to Michigan? Yeah. So we were, my dad moved to Michigan when I was eight, uh, and lived there for two years before we moved up. Oh, wow. So we actually lived. Yeah, we actually lived separate from Dad for well, because it wasn't it wasn't a divorce thing. It was Dad had a job opportunity, yeah. And Mom didn't Mom didn't want to pull us out of school in the you know in the beginning of the school year. So uh, so Dad basically Dad left home when I was early in the third grade and lived in Michigan alone and ran a business up here. Um, he didn't own it yet. He was just uh, he was just working there. What and do then, you? Uh, what are your memories of living in Indiana with just your sisters and your mom? I mean, those were like the best times of my life. It, uh, I mean, we had a, a great circle of friends. We really enjoyed the schools that we were in, which is why mom didn't want to pull us out. You know, we, uh, you know, I had hobbies. I was, you know, generally well liked and accepted. And it was it was a big shock for us to move to Michigan. Like it wasn't great. And I the the thing that the thing that uh, my parents bring up to me, and it, it does kind of capture the difference in, in in environments from you know kind of a rural Indiana upbringing to moving to Southeast Michigan uh, is what I came home from fourth grade after the first week and they asked me how it was I was like everybody swears and they're all <laughs> kind of mean. Everybody swears. It had just become a thing that if, you know one kid brought in and then spread, you know. So it doesn't, maybe it doesn't reflect that. But that was my experience: was that I came to Pine Knob 
Everyone swore. They were all kind of mean. And also at recess, fights were common. And that those were all new things to me. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, I. Uh... And I don't, I don't want to say it's like rock and tumble. It's still fucking Pine Knob Elementary, Cards yeah. Michigan. It's like it's, it's, it wasn't. It wasn't like it was. So I went from uh, I went from living uh, living the the rural Nebraska life into you know the inner city Bronx or something. But uh, you know, for for a nine year old, that distinction is not. Is becomes very clear when all you've ever known is is you know hanging out with a bunch of kids who also grew up in a giant cornfield. And it's funny that. I mean, this probably meant nothing, but it's funny that your first classroom was outdoors in the portable, right? There wasn't our yeah, class out there. With, yeah, with Mrs. Smith. Absolutely right. So it's, that was another thing, too. It's like, I remember that my schools in Indiana seemed really nice. Like, you would go there and be this nice judge. You know, it, I realize now it's just a regular school building, but it seemed really nice. And then you come up to Michigan, and it's just like, yeah, I basically am a trailer, and it's kind of, and it's not a good trailer. It's kind of a rickety, shitty trailer. Oh, man, that's funny. Yeah. Those those outdoor yeah they had those at the high school and then I don't think they have I mean I would I would hope they don't have those anymore uh, at any of the schools but the, I mean, yeah yeah that was so weird I don't know what why would they do that do you think that's just like they had too many students yeah. they're like we can't build a new school but we can build these outdoor buildings no you know, so the the device he, this is just a you know a guess but I think this is right uh, you might remember that when we were in a school. You know, there was the middle school, and then there was the high school, but uh, there was also a new high school being built. Yeah. And even at that at that point, it was being talked about, oh, there's going to be a new high school. And then everything would kind of shift, like the, the elementary school would go to where the middle school was, which is bigger. The middle school would go to where the high school was, which is bigger. And then all the high school students would go to the new school. Yeah. Now, what would it, because of the development time of a building like that new high school and all the funding they would have to get together and all that kind of stuff i'm pretty sure that they knew it was coming and didn't want to spend a bunch of money building a bunch of uh building a bunch of rooms yeah you know when they knew that they were just going to be moving to a new building soon anyway that's I, fair i think that's what happened that's fair that's a that's a fair but hypothesis know, I, but i don't know that's just that's just, that's just speculation <laughs> I, I, oh, I, could, you, I, I could be out to lunch you weren't directly involved with the development in the <laughs> <laughs> they weirdly they didn't ask for my opinion <laughs> Sons so I wouldn't given it if they if if they if they if they'd asked me, especially around seventh or eighth grade, I probably would have been like, "Why don't you just blow it all up?" <laughs> you you were a good drawer. You were drawing out the plans. Um, That's right. <laughs> so I was not a good drawer, and I, I realize that now as an as an older man who occasionally, who occasionally over the last three decades has tried to start picking up drawing again. I realized it's like I just have no talent for this, and. I need to stop telling myself that I'm good at it. It's so funny. Uh, I mean, A, I think that's objective. Um, <laughs> but, or like, it's, what did you, what was your guy's name? You used to, because that's how we first started getting yeah, together, like know, making comic book characters and shit. I know who you're talking about. I forget what he was called. But, oh, man. Yeah, but, yeah, I, but, but I, would, I would do these drawings, and there were always other kids in the class who were better than I was, but I was always just like, no. I just have my own style. That's not true. They were just better than I was. <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, I guess I can relate to that. I always try to see. I'm. Tr I'm trying to not compare myself to other people in those respects. Because in that way, well, like I'm a shitty musician. It, I'm a shitty artist. I'm a shitty. Artist. It, it's it's hard with artistic endeavor 
But I mean, I, and part of it too is that, like, you know, I grew up with my mom, who was an yeah. artist, and, and, and always did art at least as a hobby, even if not as a professional when I was growing up. So, and you know, she would do these like beautiful watercolors and these, you know, gorgeous sketches. And I would just be like, oh, that's my mom. So that means that I can do this too. But, you know, she would try to explain to me how she does it, and I would try it. And, you know, my mom's very encouraging. So she would never tell me it was shit. And at some point, I wish she had. Like, Michael, <laughs> these sketches are shit. Like, you need, to, you, need to, you, need to, you need to commit a good year of hard practice of drawing something really hard to draw every day and trying to get every detail right before you're going to get good at this. Mom will never say that. She'll never say anything that disparaging. So, so I'll just be like, oh, my, my mom says it's good. Yeah. <laughs> and she knows because she's an artist. I think that yeah. speaks to like the business side of your brain. Cause like I, uh, I enjoy drawing. I'm not great at it at all. And I even took a drawing class in college, like, I don't know, five, six years ago. And, uh, was terrible at it because it was like actual drawing skills like yeah. shading yeah. and all this. I was like, but no, but look at this, look at this superhero I drew. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, no, but I, th that's the thing is I still enjoy doing it. So I can't, I've gotten to a point where I'm like, well, fuck you. You can't take that away. I'm still going to enjoy yeah. myself and I'll be super that, critical probably, but I'll still enjoy myself. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, uh, it, it, and I, and I agree that I guess part of what I'm saying though, is that I, you know, you don't want to have a mistaken perception of your talent level. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and for, for me, it's just like, look, there, there are plenty of things I'm good at. I don't also have to be good at this. Yeah. I mean, if you were, uh, you know, 38 and you're like, why can't I get that cartoonist job? I've been trying yes. for years. <laughs> then yeah, someone should step in and be like, "Hey, Mike." <laughs> um, <laughs> but I digress. Uh, <laughs> see, these are the tangents. I promised I wouldn't go on. That's uh, okay. No. It's, oh yeah, no. I, it happens every time. <laughs> uh, I think that's. I think that's supposed to happen. I think that's part of the the fun of podcasting. Is it's like we can talk about my life, but it's much more interesting to go off on a tangent <laughs> because that tangent is interesting. Yeah. So we stopped hanging out at that period. The school borders changed and you're one of three people that go to this new school where everyone else went to this other school and it's right. you and me and we're not like on speaking terms at that point. Right. <laughs> and then a third person, uh, regardless of conversation, but, uh, that was like the worst year of my life. And I'm wondering just like, what was that transition like for you going to this new school with all new people? I mean, are we talking about, it was sixth grade here? Yeah. Fifth to sixth grade, that, that transition. Yeah. It was a nightmare. I had no friends. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, and, uh, I had no friends. Every, you know, everyone in middle school is a douchebag. And I think that's a universal truth. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, people, basically you have 12-year-olds who are now realizing that they can be little sociopaths to each other and there'd be no consequences. <laughs> and, and, that, and I mean, I feel, like, uh, I feel like that was basically my experience in middle school. Is I, I, got to, I got to experience the pure sociopathy uh, that humans are willing to inflict on each other when they believe there are no consequences for their actions. <laughs> and, yeah, it was not great. I, I'm trying to think, like, who are my friends that... There were, I did have a couple of like neighbor kids that I would, I would hang out with, but that was more out of convenience than like I actually enjoyed their company. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, I mean, it didn't last super long because was it seventh grade? We started hanging out again. 
Yep, yep, <clears throat> that's what we started. We picked up D and D late seventh, early eighth grade. D and D spawn kept oh, kept yeah. going down spawn. the the comic book spawn rabbit so, hole. Spawn so good. So what's the? I mean, kind of summarizing. What's the rest of school like? Like for you, um, academically, socially, what's going on at home? I have never been a good student, ever. Like, there's never been a time in my life where a teacher has come and said, oh, Michael, what a great student, so diligent, so thoughtful, so so good at paying attention in class, so good at doing his homework, so good at... But I was good at tests, so that uh, that pulled me through basically every grade, because I could, I could always show up and, and get, get an A on a test. Just so like as long as you information did, retention? Yeah, as, as, as long as you didn't ask me to do a bunch of menial tasks, I'd be fine with it. Like, it's like, you want me to show up and sit for enough for 45 minutes and tell you everything I know? I'm happy to do it. But I'm not going to sit here and practice telling you everything I know for, you know, some tiny marginal improvement of my grade. That's bullshit. So I, I say that self-righteously. It definitely hurt me later in life that uh, <laughs> I didn't have a great academic transcript. Because, like, uh, in ninth grade, I had this teacher uh, who was our science teacher uh, in high school. And uh, at one point, uh, she decided at the end of the semester to do, like, a quiz game with her students. And this was after the last test. It was, like, the last day of class. Um, and, uh, and I got all the answers right, literally all the answers. And th these were, and for her, I, I'm watching. So she, after, uh, after the class was over, she wrote me a note, like a handwritten note, because people used to do that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> And she said, I am really sorry that you, because I, I ended up getting a C in her class. Uh, she's like, I'm really sorry that you got the grade you did in my class. It's clear to me that you understood and retained all the material, but you didn't do any of the homework, and that's why this happens. You need to learn how to play the game. And I realized that, she, <laughs> and while I realized that she was right, I'm also just like, God, to this day, like when I, we're talking about now my, my own son going to school, and I hear similar things from his teachers about him. It's like, he clearly knows how to, like, he clearly knows how to write books. He does all the problems. Like he just doesn't like to actually sit down and do the work. I'm just like, yeah, because it's fucking stupid. <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> what a funny thing to point out. Like you gotta, you gotta learn to play Dude, the game. Yeah, that's what it is. It's just like, what am I? Are you trying to tell me that I'm here in school to learn how to play school? <laughs> I, I thought I was here to demonstrate to learn and demonstrate knowledge yeah. like, but I, I of course that's a very naive thing to say and i realize now as an older man that it's not the purpose of school <laughs> the purpose of school is to is to produce obedient little bureaucrats but okay so critical um I <laughs> well i mean i i'd like to think that and obviously like the school system in general at this point you know it's been the same for so long decades centuries maybe uh that it's yeah. There, About 130 years. Yeah, there should be some sort of reform. Um, but <laughs> I, I like to think that they were like, all right, who, like, what did the majority of students respond to? Okay, this homework structure. Okay, then that's what we're going to make all the students do. And then you get people like you who are like, I don't need to do that to retain that information. And Right. Uh, yeah. But they can't, tailor, they can't tailor school to people like me or people like you. And they also can't tailor school to the, to the kids who are always falling off behind they'll yeah. just hold you back which is you know and again it's 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 not it's not a great system if you're not in the middle like 70 percent yeah you know if you're if you're on the top 15 or the bottom 15 percent the the school system is going to fuck you in the ass amen that's going to be the tagline <laughs> for the podcast <laughs> 
Um, so was college then on the, on your radar automatically because your parents and everything? Yeah. I actually didn't know that it was an option to not go to college until I was in college. Until you met me and you're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, I think after, after high school, we didn't really stay in touch, No, but, but, uh, but no, I mean like for real, it was my, 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 it was like the way that you know that middle school follows high school. My parents, and I found out later from dad, this was a deliberate strategy. My parents treated college as the thing you do after high school, just like the thing, high school is the thing you do after middle school. Like, you have to do it. You have no choice. The only choice you have is maybe where you go, but you don't really have much choice in that either because it's going to be wherever we tell you to go. So, <laughs> Well, so on that, on that note, where did they tell you to go? Well, Dad wanted me to go to Notre Dame. Obviously. Uh, which, but, well, let's, uh, let, here's, all right, now I want to I want to talk about Notre Dame for just a second, uh, but not because, that, all right, so my dad, hardcore Catholic, but also really not the world's most moral person, right? Um, and I, I, you know, I, these days I have a better relationship with my dad than I have in a, in a long time, so I don't, I don't want to knock the guy too much, but... For most of my life, he was he saying not a nice man is really a, a, a deep understatement. Dad, dad is flies off the handle and is kind of a control freak and is really a bit of a sociopath. And you know, I I really have a hard time sometimes understanding why he does a lot of the things he does because they don't seem to gain him any benefit. It just it, it just either annoys or discourages or pisses people off who are all around him, right? But anyway, Dad wanted me to go to Notre Dame, not because of the kind of school that Notre Dame is. He wanted me to go to Notre Dame because it would make him look good, being an Irish Catholic going to Notre Dame. Yeah. And he was a son going to Notre Dame, right? Which is not a good reason to tell your kid to go to a school that they're probably not going to be able to get into. <laughs> yeah. Because, because even like if, if, you, if, if it was only test scores that got, got, got you into a school like Notre Dame, even then, like 20 years ago when I was applying, my test scores would have been marginal for what you would need to get into a school like that. And I, I wasn't one of these kids that took the ACT like seven times. I took it once. I did fine. It was good enough to get to any school in Michigan, so I was like, fine with me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I know that it would not have been good enough to get into Notre Dame. And that's not even considering... The fact that I have like a 2.3 GPA coming out of high school, so <laughs> 1.9 over here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. So I'm just so I was just like, all right, well, you know, that dad can tell me that he thinks this is a good idea. It's not. <laughs> but one thing you can do is you can go to Holy Cross College, which is right across the street from Notre Dame, and is a two-year college that feeds its best students into Notre Dame to finish out their four-year degree. That's what Rudy did. If you ever saw Rudy, that's what Rudy. That's how that's how Rudy got into Notre Dame. So basically, you have an entire school full of kids who all want to go to Notre Dame. So I so I went there, and I will actually tell you that uh, Notre Dame or uh, Holy Cross was a great education, specifically because there was a man there who uh, was a professor. His name was Father Sullivan, and Father Sullivan was really big on the great books of the Western world that, that you had to read them, starting with the beginning then read one, each one sequentially re- leading up to the 20th century. And to this day, I still go back and I read those books because... What are some was, of those books? like? Well, here's, here's one sitting on my desk, Landmark Thucydides. It's about the... So you saw you saw uh, the movie 300? 
No, actually, I'm one of those no, okay. two people that have not seen that movie. All right, so you know they. All right, but you understand the premise. You yeah, these yeah. hardcore Spartans yeah. who go and are just basically like the Navy SEALs of the, of the ancient Greek period. Yeah, three hundred against like an entire yeah, army. It, yeah, it's it was, it's supposed to be three hundred against two hundred thousand, and yeah. that's from another guy named Herodotus, who I also have on, on my back shelf. So after that was over, this, there were two two groups there: the Spartans and the Athenians. The Athenians were a naval power. Uh, they they basically had a bunch of colonies spread all throughout the Mediterranean, and the Spartans were land power. They basically owned one entire peninsula in Greece, and they were these hardcore Navy SEAL motherfuckers. But they had no navy, and so then these two Greek city states decided to go to war with each other. And basically, what happened is the Spartans marched up to Athens, surrounded it, but they couldn't. They didn't have enough power to break through the walls. The Athenians definitely weren't going to go fight the Spartans because fuck that noise. <laughs> And so they just kind of sailed around in their navy, and that was the war. And that's what this—that's what this one's about. It's about that war. Eventually, the eventually the, the Spartans were either able to introduce plague, or were fortuitous in that the Athenians caught the plague, and then they they all died from the inside out after about twenty years. Ha ha. Um. Ha ha. And then the Spartans showed up and established an. But anyway, that's that's what. Is about. Uh, yeah, no, I was just I was just curious if there was a few like so anyway, the, books yeah, that so the, stuck out. It, oh, well, okay. Uh oh. My bookshelves here in my office. We're going through a list here, people. All right. So when you want to start, there's there's two you really want to start with. It's it's this one. Uh, it's the Epic of Gilgamesh. So before uh, before the Bible, before ancient Greece, uh, there there was a city state called Ur. Which is now in Iraq. So you, you figure it's U R Ur, and uh, that's what actually Iraq is named for. Is the city of Ur, Iraq, right? Okay. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh is basically uh, the if you took the Bible and mixed it with uh, this book, the Iliad, which was written by Homer. I, I do know Homer's Iliad. I've never read yeah. it, but I know what it is. <laughs> so basically, well, so basically, the Iliad was really probably inspired by the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Bible also inspired by the Epic of Gilgamesh, because uh, you know the the ancient Hebrews spent a good bit of time in the mess in, in exile between uh, where basically in Babylon, where basically Iraq is now. They probably picked this up and influenced the Bible. So anyway, you start with the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's about a guy who is a hardcore warrior king who fucks everything that has a tail. And that's not an exaggeration. Like, if, if, if you read this book, it's just like, basically, all of his subjects are complaining that this dude is always nailing their wives. And, <laughs> um, and then, uh, in order to calm him down, they, they introduce him to a friend, uh, who is like a warrior companion, and then it becomes sort of like a buddy cop story for for a couple of chapters, and then you know, it, and really for the first half of the book, it's really just about the hardcore, awesome things that these two guys do, and then a lot, there's lots of backslapping about how awesome we are and that sort of thing, and then his friend dies of disease, not in battle, not uh, not you know gloriously, you know doing doing something epic. He just slowly wastes away and dies of disease. And so Gilgamesh decides he's going to try to figure out, as his last great adventure, how to conquer death. And then things get a little weird, because <laughs> Gilgamesh gets kind of philosophical. 
and he goes and he finds he he finds a man whose name was uh, not Pishtun, of course. But you could but you could very you could very easily say that his real name is her or the name that we would all know by is Noah because he was a guy who discovered the secret of eternal life, lives forever, survived. But and he, the reason he can live forever is because he got the blessing of the gods by surviving a great flood by building an ark and loading all the animals into it. And I mean, it's like you can't make this up. Like this is, a, and then, and then in order, and then you know, but basically now lives in a Shangri-La kind of, uh, kind of like state. And Gilgamesh finds him and says, "How can I live forever?" And this guy goes, "You can't. It's all all mortal men are doomed to die." And Gilgamesh just gets really sad about it. But then he goes back to his city, and they repeat repeat the same lines at the at the end of the story from the beginning. At the beginning of the story, he talks about how beautiful his city is. How you know how the, the the extent of his walls and how how he laced uh, his palace with lapis lazuli, which is you know this beautiful blue gemstone, and uh, and it's you know basically that looking out across the city as a testament to himself and about how how glorious it is. And then after he learns about his mortality, he goes back to his city and he sees his city again, and it repeats the same lines, but now it means something different because now it's like. You might not be able to live forever, but your society and the things you build will last beyond you. And I mean, we're still reading about him today, so he wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so cool. Anyway, it, it's, I like it's that cool. idea. I, um, I like that idea of legacy because I'm like I obsess over that, and that's like I don't know if I fear death as much as I fear being forgotten about. <laughs> that's, I would, I, I would pick this one up. I yeah, I wrote it down. It, it, it's it's it, it's short. It'll take you about an afternoon to read it. So, you uh, you overestimate my reading abilities. <laughs> well, it's a, it, it it is an epic poem. So there's a lot of things that repeat. So once you read it once, you can actually just see that it repeats over like three pages with just one detail change. So that's the that's the genius of book idea right there. I'm just kidding. <laughs> how'd well, you get it, three thousand pages? <laughs> just well, the, well look, at, the, at the time it probably wasn't uh, written down. We, we got it because after the uh, the Assyrians burned a bunch of cities, so they, they didn't have paper back in ancient yeah, yeah. They used uh, uh, cuneiform tablets. Cuneiform tablets are kind of clay. The Assyrians would burn every city they came across, which I mean that's that's bullshit. The Assyrians were bullshit for, for real. Uh, if you ever if you ever want to read about a horrific, sadistic ancient culture, the Assyrians are in. Uh, but. Uh, but uh, so when the Assyrians came through and they burned everything, it took these clay tablets and hardened them, and they lasted. And that's how we have this, this written down today. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, did you major in history when you went to school? <laughs> no, I just like reading about. I just like reading books that are thousands of years old. Okay. Um, it's, uh, what did what did so you? It, and, then, and that started from Father Sullivan, yeah. at Holy Cross College, when I first started. It's, he's he's the one he's the one who introduced me to that and. To this day, I'm still doing it. So you did that, and then you went to Notre Dame. No, I oh. I, uh, I didn't get into Notre Dame out, okay. of, out of Holy Cross because, as I may have mentioned uh, briefly in previous statements, I am a terrible student. <laughs> but how? So uh, what said, happened after Holy Cross? Uh, I went to a little liberal arts college uh, in Michigan called Hillsdale. Okay. Uh, Hillsdale is the super Republican college and when i say super republican i don't i don't mean it's like oh you know it's like there's a lot of republicans that go there it's like no 
this but this place puts out a newsletter that basically every serious Republican in the in the country reads, and it's it's just poison. It, the whole the whole the whole place is just poison. It's it's all just a bunch of if you know. I'm not going to say that a lot of modern college campuses don't go too far to the left and have a lot of groupthink around. You know, everyone needs to be left. But the remedy to that is not to be like, oh, what we should do is have groupthink, but it'll be on the right. That'll be okay. <laughs> There, no, it'll balance out okay. somewhere. <laughs> that's right. It balances. It doesn't. It doesn't balance out. The answer is don't do groupthink. You're allowed. You're allowed to disagree about things. You don't have to have everybody, you know, down one hard ideological, uh, hard ideological path. And Hillsdale was was not that. But well, between my dad was uh, but but my dad was happy I went there, so that's why I went there. That's funny. Um, well, you you know, you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons earlier, and I think like you found your your niche in friendships with uh, games like that and, and Warhammer and yeah. stuff like that. What would, what did that social life look like when you got to college? Because this is like the so, years I did not know you. So <laughs> yeah, so, so so when I was at Holy Cross, uh, I met another guy in the dorms named Jack. Jack and I would hang out. We would play Warhammer because I had all my Warhammer guys with me. Yeah, and uh, and you know it was just it was just super fun. But uh, but yeah, I. You can always find people who are into those nerdy gaming hobbies. And South Bend, where Holy Cross and Notre Dame are, has a couple of really good gaming stores. So if you wanted to go pick up a game, you could. Yeah. That's what that would do. Did you do like any typical partying or anything like that in college? Not at Holy Cross, because I was too scared. Uh, but once I got to Hillsdale, I was just like, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> what does fuck it look like? <laughs> Well, actually, that's not true. I, I think uh, I think the last couple of months I was at Holy Cross, I was like, "Fuck it," because at that point I wasn't getting in Notre Dame, so who cares? Uh, um, and fuck it, looks like buy me buy me a twelve pack, and let's see how fast I can drink it. <laughs> yeah, I've played that game many times. <laughs> yeah, I know. For, and for I've real. won. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, I, I look back on it now, and I wonder how close I was to actual alcohol poisoning. <laughs> On yeah. multiple occasions, and it was just so. I mean, I know everyone does it. It's well, not everyone, but at least a healthy chunk of people do it. And uh, yeah, so there was basically once I once I discovered beer, it was all kind of downhill from there. Like my <laughs> my entire college career was really a drunken haze. Yeah, that's that's fine. <laughs> so <laughs> did fine. you do you end up going? into business with your dad right after college no um i worked as a stockbroker for a couple of years after college and i actually i spent most of my most of my adult life trying to avoid going into business with my dad uh because he always wanted me to yeah and i, I always knew i would hate it because working with dad is a fucking nightmare um but you, so i started out as a stockbroker uh and uh, did that for a couple of years, and that was that was a pretty good one. Like uh, I, I I had a good list of clients, and you know we I, I did some good business with that because my my major in college was finance. Okay. Uh, when I got to when I got to Hillsdale, so it's, it was something I was suited for. But I always wanted to work on Wall Street. If you want to work on Wall Street, you have to have an MBA from a really good school. Notre Dame is a really good school, and I could I could I could fulfill my dream. So I go down to Notre Dame, and I asked the guy or in a to just do like an informational interview to find out, you know, if there's even any possibility that I could get in there. And uh, I'm talking with a guy, and he's telling me he's like, "Yeah, you need a really, you need a really strong GPA to get a graduate degree here." And I'm not sure you make the cut. He's like, "But further, more importantly than that, like even if you had the good GPA and you had a perfect test score, you 
I look at your resume and what you're telling me you want to do with your life, you're basically just kind of a selfish bastard who's never done anything for anything other than himself. This gets back to what I was telling you earlier, where Dad wanted me to go to Notre Dame for the prestige. But Notre Dame is really serious about the service before self mission. Even, you know, and, uh, and when I say they're really serious about it, they're serious enough that they'll turn you away if they think that you're not taking the service piece seriously enough. That's interesting. And Dad never understood that, and still doesn't, I don't think. For him, it's still all about the prestige, but Notre Dame is very much, very much a school where if, you know, if you want to show up and be a fucking selfish prick, you're not going to last long there. Like, it, everyone is all about the, the community ethic, going out, you know, working in homeless shelters, doing, uh, what, when you actually get into the workforce, doing things that contribute to the good of the world and not just the good of your career. Do you feel like that was just reinforcing the narrative from your freshman year in high school that you have to play this game in order to succeed academically? Well, I clearly took it to heart, uh, because it, 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 because at that point I was just like, I am tired of failing at this game that I know I can succeed at. So if I have to demonstrate that I'm willing to serve, well, fuck this, watch it. And so then I joined the army, <laughs> and that's and that is directly what led me to joining the army. Is uh, I had this interview in Notre Dame. He basically said, "You could get your, you know, I, I could take a couple graduate level college courses yeah. if I did the work. I'd be fine." Uh, but uh, but he's like, even if you did that, we still wouldn't let you in because you have no service in your history. And you have, and based on what you're telling me, you want to do. You have, you know, working on Wall Street is not exactly service oriented. Uh, <laughs> a service oriented career path. So he's just like this. That, that's not the, you know. You can go to Yale or Wharton or you know Harvard. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and, and they'll be more than happy to turn you into an industrialized drone. Uh, but if you want to, if you want to come to Notre Dame, you need to be willing to demonstrate that you're willing to sacrifice a little bit. And okay, so I joined the army. Enter the army. <laughs> so I joined. So I joined the army to get into Notre Dame. I enlisted as a specialist, which is really just a fancy kind of private. Um, what year is this? So I enlisted in 2008, right okay. in the middle of the surge, right in the middle of the surge in Iraq. <laughs> and it, it's also not lost on me that Epic of Gilgamesh has always stuck with me. And I was literally like five, five, where I was posted when I actually got to Iraq was five miles from where this all takes place. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it is really cool. And, you know, obviously I couldn't go to the museum at Old Ur and I couldn't see the ruins of Ur, which are still there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, man, that would have been really cool. Anyway, I was so close. I was so close yet so far. And, and of course, all that, those ISIS fuckheads are all just destroying all these ancient uh, Babylonian artifacts, which is just a tragedy. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so so you joined the army. <laughs> so I joined the army as a specialist, which, like I said, is just a fancy kind of private. At, like, what, 25 uh, years old at this point? Yep. That's crazy. And uh, But I, I joined... Uh, I joined with what's called an OCS option. So I had the option to go to officer candidate school if I could get a recommendation from my drill sergeant. And if not, I would just have to be a regular soldier for four years. So I worked my butt off in basic training. Uh, I got my recommendation. I don't know if you know what the difference between an officer and an enlisted man is. But basically, officers officers get saluted. If that, if that kind of just breaks it down for you, what happens? <laughs> The, the, the second you become even the lowest ranking officer, you already outrank 83% of the rest of the military. Nice. So it's it's basically a way to jump into the leadership ranks right away. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard to get in. And, but uh, the, fortunately, there isn't an academic test. You just have to take an IQ test, and, you know, I'll do okay with that. 
hey, you, you take an IQ test. If you score at least 120, you're you're basically qualified for every officer position there is. I did fine, so I uh, I was qualified. And I did a lot of running, you know, a lot of push ups, a lot of pull ups, a lot of sit ups. That's and, the part uh, I would but, fail at. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I feel that at, fir- at first too. Like I'm here, and I am probably one of the least physically fit people in this platoon. But I'm just like, I am not going to be a, you know, a private for the rest of my military career. I need to get if I want to get into Notre Dame, I need to be an officer. Yeah. Because nobody, nobody cares that you spent four years basically being a replaceable piece of equipment in the military. You have to get to the point where you are ordering what to do with the replaceable pieces of equipment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. Yeah, so uh, so I eventually I got to the point where I I, I was physically fit and uh, I got my recommendation to OCS. I got my branch, which was artillery, so I was an artillery officer. And uh, then uh, I got to my unit. And three months later, I deployed to Iraq. Uh, and when we got there, there wasn't really a lot of need for artillery. When I say artillery, you know what that means? It's big cannons, big ass guns. Yeah, big ass fucking guns, and there was there was not a lot of need for big ass guns by the time I got to Iraq, because it was a counterinsurgency. Weirdly, shelling an entire village is not a good idea if you're trying to win hearts and minds. So, go fit, I mean, do, you can fill it. You can you can fill the shells with teddy bears, but people are still going to be annoyed when they break through the roof. Yeah. <laughs> I think we learned that uh, lesson in Vietnam, didn't we? Or no? We did not. We, <laughs> okay. And the, I will t- I will tell you, the army has still not learned that lesson. The army is that the army has not figured out that the best way to win a counterinsurgency is not to roll in with a bunch of fucking soldiers and start shooting things. Like that's that is the army way, and I'm glad I'm not part of it anymore. Fair <laughs> um, so you did four, just four years, and then you were done, and then yeah, four years, and then. Uh, and then I got another name. I actually interviewed with the same guy I did uh, on the way nice. on the way out, and he was just like, you know, I meant for you to go like volunteer at a soup kitchen. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I was didn't. gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So I'm, I'm assuming but, uh, he was like, well, okay, fine, you get it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> He's like, yeah. well, okay, you join the army to get to Notre Dame. I guess that means you're serious. Come on in. So I went to Notre Dame. Uh, got the got that graduate degree. It was out. Oh, I had a great time in Notre Dame, and I, I wasn't I wasn't playing any D and D at this point, but I found a group of guys at Notre Dame who were, we were all in the same place in our life. Most of us were recently married. Uh, most of us uh, most of us were giant nerds. We all cared about business, uh, but also we all had a thing for nerdy games, and so we that's when I got into board gaming in a in a much bigger way. So like uh, we would play the Game of Thrones board game, the diplomacy board game. Um, the, uh, there, there were a lot of like uh, space conquest games, and uh, you know they're, they're they're a lot easier to get together and just access and allies, you know things like yeah, that. Yeah. The, the a, lot, a lot of the classics, a lot of the new classics. So they're uh, settlers of Catan. Yes, exactly, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So basically, every week we would get together and do that stuff, and you know, drink beer. It was, it was there was a lot less partying at graduate school than there was in undergrad, though. Yeah. I'm not going to say. Hey, once again. I was not a great student at Notre Dame. Well, and you're uh, almost you're get... almost starting school at thirty, right? Uh, at Notre Dame? No, I was twenty eight when I started okay. at Notre Dame. So I graduated when I was thirty. Okay. Uh, because uh, I joined the army when I was twenty four, I guess, then, and then I got out when I was twenty eight. Went to graduate school and then graduated when I was thirty. But I, I mean, I'm still a piece of shit when it comes. To, I mean, all 
everyone else in class would always be like, why don't you ever come to class? I'm like, because it's stupid. Like, I already know. I, I, but but the, the, now my reasons have changed. It was like, look, I am here to get a job. And especially like, because I got a job offer uh, in, uh, in, my, the, in just the beginning of my second year, and it's a two-year deal. And at that point, it's like, you have a job offer. Your goal is just to graduate so you can go take that job offer. It's not to do anything other than that. Like, it's a, the, the getting an MBA is basically a two-year job fair. So you, you, the way you talk about school and jobs is, like, it's this background chore that everyone's just got to do, and that's part of life. Um, so what what's going on, like... What what fulfills you? I guess if if that's just something that has to happen. Uh, I I mean, if I told you it was reading books, would that really be a big surprise? <laughs> no. Um, read, read, reading books. Well, when did you when did you meet your wife? Uh, I met her about nine months before I joined the army. Oh, how did uh, that play out? <laughs> well, here's how it went. <laughs> I came back from Notre Dame, and because uh, she knew. Like on our on our second date, she asked me if I had any goals. Probably trying to figure out if I was, you know, just an aimless piece of shit. And I gave her my five year plan to go to Notre Dame, go to Wall Street, then start my own hedge fund. That was my five year plan. <laughs> uh, and the fact that I did uh, I did only one of those three things tells you about how well five year plans work out. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> that's okay. But uh, so she she always knew that it was in the back of my not even in the back of my mind that you know going to Notre Dame was the next thing that I was going to do. And for her, that's not a big deal. Like it's, you know, only three and a half hours away from where we live here in Michigan, so it's not it's not like she'd be super far from all of her friends and family. And it only be for a couple of years, and then you know we'll see. Yeah. Well, I drive back from Notre Dame. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to get in like this, but I have a thought. I uh, I I might be able to get in if I do something a little bit dramatic. And she's like, and what's that? It's like, I'm thinking I might. What's join that? The join Army. a soup kitchen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and I was like, well, I'm thinking I might join the army. And she's just, uh, can't, she was not on board with the plan. Yeah. But uh, she said, she's like, look, I'm not going to stand in the way of what you're telling me is one of the most important things that you want to try to do. Not join the army, get into Notre Dame, which is fucked. Uh, don't do that. Don't join the army to get into a school. <laughs> but so you guys uh, but, are barely uh, together though you're together what like six yeah, months no, when you're making like, this we're, decision we're, we're, we're just boy, we're just boyfriend and girlfriend we're not engaged yeah we're, you know the uh the the possibility that i'm not going to be with this person forever is very distinct in my mind but uh she basically said it's like if you're going to join the army i need a commitment before you leave because also when you join you're kind of you can't really communicate with anyone on the outside world for about six months because you do basic training and then officer candidate school, yeah. and there is—it's not like you can have a cell phone. You can't. There's no. There's no cell phones. You get you know one hour of phone time every week. So basically, that's your that's your relationship. One hour a week for six months on the phone, yeah. on a landline with a line with a line of dudes waiting behind you to use the phone. Because there's one phone for per company. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's so you had what? So you engage, got engaged before you left. Yep. So I, I proposed to her on uh, Christmas Day, and she said yes, and uh, we got engaged, and then I left and I joined the Army, and uh, she, she stuck with me through all the bullshit, and we got, we got married almost exactly a year later, December 27th. 
Oh, so you you got married while you were still enlisted and everything? Oh yeah, I didn't do the army wedding thing though. I uh, I did. Uh, I did, it was just me with a tux. Because Kate, I was I was very clear. I was like, look, I understand there are people who are out there who really embrace the whole military thing and they yeah. embrace the military life, and it becomes part like a core part of their identity. I was there for a very utilitarian reason, and I, I I didn't share that information with anybody. Like if anyone asked me why I joined the army. I would just answer to serve my country, and that would be it. Yeah. Because it's you can't just be like, oh, I'm here to get into graduate school and have the Army pay for it. <laughs> Which is funny, because that's like, I feel like a lot of their recruitment methods are like, hey. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But, but yeah, so uh, I was still in the Army when she joined me, but I just we just did a regular wedding. And uh, she was she was with me while I was deployed, and, you know, I talked to her every night and for a year while I was in the, living in a tent in the fucking desert. And doing combat patrols and trying to avoid getting shot or blown up. Trying to avoid letting my men get shot or blown up. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, how soon after you get back do you guys have your first kid? That was, a, it wasn't until after graduate school. So we get, so I get back from Iraq. Uh, I spent another year in the Army doing, uh, I became, after I was a combat leader, I became an administrator in the Army, which is a normal for an officer they they show you the the, the ground bare knuckle side and then they show you sort of the officer and the gentleman side and so i and i hated it it was terrible uh <laughs> <laughs> because you're basically an army bureaucrat for for a year yeah. and uh so i'm an army bureaucrat and um i have no men to command and this sucks no one cares about your physical fitness so you get fat because you're because <laughs> you're just a bureaucrat you know you're not you're not a combat leader anymore you don't need to be hard and tough yeah uh, <laughs> so I got really fat, and uh, then I got out of the army, went to Notre Dame, and after I graduated from Notre Dame, I lived in Portland for a year, uh, working at Intel, the, the semiconductor company, huh, yeah, uh, in finance. So it's not like I was making microprocessors, but I was analyzing the financial implications of making certain kinds of microprocessors. And your wife, I'm assuming, just followed you to or Portland. Yep, followed me to Portland. You lived. Uh, in a tiny 800 square foot house yeah, on a dingy street that was supposed to be one of the coolest neighborhoods in Portland. And it cost more than the house I live in now, which is a very nice house in a very nice neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how that works. Which, uh, which, which did, uh, which did sort of disillusion me as to the, the, the coastal lifestyle. Like, I'm just like, look, I think I got spoiled by spending so much time in the Midwest where I'm just like, if you have, you know, 800 bucks, per month in rent you can live like a normal human being yeah uh if you have 800 bucks per month in rent in portland you better have like seven roommates otherwise it's going to go very badly for you that's the thing like well when i was working at, when i was working at intel i was a senior financial analyst i had i had eight other analysts working under under me and i'm you know i we're well in the six figures range now because yeah. you know you've got a, you got a nice degree and you're working in a giant Fortune 100 company and you're a mid level manager at that company like you're doing okay, but I still felt like it's like I think I live worse now than I did when I was making forty thousand dollars a year as a combat platoon leader in the yeah. army. Yeah, like well, what? So that's uh, that's what prompted me to call dad and finally give in, which I did. But also at that point, you know, dad had spent most of my most of my early career. Between, having between 12 and 16 restaurants and that's I mean that's a good number but you don't really need a lot of help 
yeah. to, to run to run a business of that size. You basically need a person who can run the operations of the restaurants, and you need an accountant. That's it. But you, you don't have to hire the accountant full time. You can just outsource it. So the uh, but over the uh, over the time that I was in Portland, Dad bought about twenty more restaurants. So he's at thirty six restaurants, and his financing was a disaster, and his accounting was a disaster. And all of his back office procedures were a disaster. And so I, I come back to dad. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I come back as his CFO. And I worked for him for a couple years. After a while, he tells me that he's ready to sell the business. Now, uh, at this point, we have about 60 restaurants. Because, uh, you know, you bring me on. I've got some, I, I've got, I've got some skills at this point with, uh, with financing. I could grow this business. I can get the money. We can we can buy more. We can buy and build more stores. Yeah. So we we've grown the we've grown the business to about sixty stores. Uh, and Dad decides he's going to sell the business, which kind of sucks for me because this is my job, and now I have to help him sell the business, and then I'll be out of a job. <laughs> but uh, but I, I it, it worked out okay because uh, while while we were selling, I was interviewing at a couple of the companies, and it, as it turns out. Becoming a fran- becoming the CFO of franchisees who are looking to grow their business is is a nice little career path. So that's kind of what I did. Is I went out marketed myself as someone who could become the CFO of a group of franchise restaurants. At first, I did franchise restaurants, but then I realized like all franchises are basically the same. So you know, if, from a financial point of view, there's not a huge difference between them. Yeah. So I uh, so so uh, I eventually got an offer from a guy. Who owned uh, seven Planet Fitness gyms, and which was funny because at this point I weighed like two hundred and seventy pounds. I was a perfect Planet Fitness client. <laughs> That's really uh, funny. Yeah, no, I was. I, you work at Wendy's, you're, you're going to get fat, and you work at Wendy's as an office worker, you're going to get really fucking fat. <laughs> free burgers. Yeah, free burgers. I mean, it, and the thing is, is like after a while, it's like cocaine. You know, you, it's, it's like that one bump is not going to do you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why they made something called the Baconator. <laughs> that's right. Exactly right. The, bacon, the Baconator is like snorting six lines of Coke on his ass. Like, that's, a, that's, the level, that's the level of fast food you're at when you start eating that thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, so uh, so we, he sold the business, and I got this job offer to go work as the CFO of, uh, of another company. Which so so we were set, you know. We had just Katie and Katie and I had just had our first baby, and we had just moved to uh, we had just moved to Rochester. Actually, no, this was we had just had our second baby, and we had just moved to Rochester. Well, yeah, I uh, want to. Can I shift for a second? Yeah. Just what is, what is it like becoming a father? What what changes? What's my, what's your mindset? What, or does anything shift? <laughs> I mean, what, what? Yeah, there there are a lot of changes, and they don't. It's I feel like. I was inadequately prepared. And I don't know if like this information is out there and I just <laughs> ignored it. Um, I guess before we had kids, I knew it was the natural progression. So it was, it was going to happen. Like Katie and I wanted kids and we talked about it. And when we moved back to Michigan, that was the perfect time to do it because now we didn't live in a great house. We lived in Fenton at the time. Uh, but uh, we lived in a, we lived in a nice like, you know, 1700 square foot house it cost one fifth of what the house in Portland costs. So <laughs> I, that's, that, that is not an exaggeration. It costs yeah, no, one fifth. I believe it. We, 
we paid one hundred thirty thousand dollars for this house. So yeah. Yeah, my <laughs> mortgage payment each month is half of what my apartment rent was in L.A. Exactly. Uh, Twenty years ago. <laughs> and, and that's the thing: we didn't own this house. We were just renting this house in yeah. Portland, and we were spending like you know five times as much as our mortgage payment yeah. uh, on this house in Fenn. So so you know we were getting much more financially stable. Um, and decided to, you know, we had a, we had a house with three bedrooms, so it was, you know, got to have a kid, get to fill one of those bedrooms. <laughs> and I don't feel like I was fully prepared for how much your life changes when you have kids. And I know a lot of people will be like, oh, but it's all great. It's not all great. Some of it sucks. Some of it sucks so hard. The I had a after Flynn was born, Flynn would not sleep through the night. And it's hard to describe to somebody who hasn't been through that what it's like never to get more than two hours of sleep at a time it is like torture it's like you're being tortured then you go it's to work literally and a form won- of torture <laughs> yeah and, and then you go to work and people wonder what's wrong with you and you tell them you have a new baby and it's like they kind of remember what that was like if they've had some themselves but there's this thing that i call baby amnesia you forget how fucking hard it is for that first year <laughs> i've heard about Which this more and more which is why people have more than one kid. Yeah. Because you, when you look back on it, all you remember is that, oh, he was so fucking cute. Remember the first time he said, I love you? It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. you forget about the full year of not a full night's sleep. Well, it's like, uh, I guess, <laughs> scientifically, I think um, women are, they, they're they meant to forget the pain that labor is. Yeah. Um, so that they'll go through it, it again. It's, it's, it's like, I think, oh, I forget what it's called. There's some name for it. It's, it's, it is a scientific thing. It's, it's messed up. But yeah, I, I can see how that would apply to other events like sleep deprivation. <laughs> right, no, for real. So uh, anyway, so we, we had a bit, and it was it was hard. It was a big adjustment for me too because look, I'm, I was really used to the idea that when I was home, I got to chill, I got to relax, I got to drink my beer, I got to eat my burgers, I got to play my video games. You know, I got to do, I got to read my books if I wanted to read some books. I got to do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. Now coming home is now you start job number two there is there there is no break you get what you basically get one hour a night between the time when the kids go to bed and the time when you go to bed and that's it that's what you get that and i i understand that that will change as the kids get older because they're they're uh, uh three and six now and so uh you know it's it's still in that in that way but like my six-year-old son is becoming much more independent like he doesn't need constant care and attention to entertain himself yeah. but i still got a three to three-year-old daughter and basically you know it's if you turn your back for a second you're going to come you're going to walk back into the kitchen and she's going to have a knife in one hand and a marker that she used to draw over the walls in the other <laughs> it's all right i'm curious though um so like i obviously had a shitty relationship with my dad um and that kind of turned me off to the idea of having kids for a long time because i i think there's like some natural fear there where like oh i'm gonna fuck it up just like my dad did and when you talk about the relationship you had with your dad and then you're like oh because i always you know we wanted to have kids i wanted to have kids what did that did you not have that concern let's be clear (laughs) when katie and i were dating so we have katie and i met online before uh before tinder there was this thing called true.com so if you were ever on myspace you might remember they advertised very heavily on there which is how i got turned on to it that's funny Uh, so uh, we met on the site called True.com, and you know, back in the day, you used to have to fill out the full profile, yeah. uh, and I so I did. And one of the questions they ask you is, "Do you intend to get married?" And I was like, 
yes. And then oh, the next question was, do you intend to have children? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I do not want to have children because for exactly what you said, I don't want to, I don't want to pass on what the, you know, so some of the things that were, that, that I had to grow up with and still have to deal with, you know, to, to a future generation. Really, it was, uh, it was Katie who got me to, to buy into the idea that one, I'm very different from my dad. You know, we're not, we're not very safe. Two, the things that are similar about us are not all that bad. Dad does have some good things about him. And three, I, if you want to, Katie was, would say, it's like, if you want to see the kind of parent you're going to be, you know, you personality wise, you're more like your mom than you are like your dad. And yeah. my mom was a great mom. Like yeah. she was great. She was, I, that, I, I, she, she was loving and caring and encouraging to a fault as we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you know, I, I don't hold that against her. It's just because she's my mom and she loves me. I mean, you understand where it's coming from. Yeah. So. And I think, I mean, I, I feel like now that I'm at a place where I do want to have kids, it's because I know that just the desire to not pass that, the bad traits on, like just having that alone, I think is a good step, like a good thing. Or like, Oh, okay. Maybe I won't be a shitty dad. Cause I like am actively not wanting to do that. I mean, let, let's be, be real with yourself here. You're never going to be a perfect parent. Oh yeah. Nobody yeah. good. I, I mean, how, even when you meet, so-called normal people on the street like you ask them about their parents is, is it just unremittingly good things they have to say it is not every parent every parent has their own unique little ways of fucking up what you can do is avoid fucking up to it in, in the particular ways that your your parents might have fucked yeah, up exactly <laughs> and but but i mean what, what you know look my, my dad had a, had a straight mission with me. And he's told me that now. He told me, uh, I was just talking with him a couple a couple weeks ago, and he was, because he saw, because we were talking about Flynn, my son, and uh, and he, you know, I, he was just like, one thing that he sees in my son is that he's a lot like me. He's sensitive. He, he wants to make people happy. He cares, you know. And, uh, and he's like, I didn't understand that you were like that when you were growing up, I thought you were a little pussy and I needed to turn you into some kind of hard ass. And he's like, that was not the right way to go. He's like, you gotta let that kid be who he is. And so it's like, you do. What's that like hearing that from your dad? That's gotta be validating. Eh, not really. (laughs) Eh. It's, I, I worked for a good decade, uh, in my, mid twenties to my mid thirties to basically force myself to stop caring what my dad thought. And I am really good at it now. <laughs> I don't care. What, I don't care what my dad thinks. I'm not living my life for my dad. He's not, and let, let's be clear. What really gets you is when you realize it doesn't matter what you do. I went to Notre Dame. Yeah. I got the bronze. I got, I, I won the bronze fucking star in Iraq. By the way, did you know that? I won the bronze star in Iraq. I, I won don't the bronze think star. I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I won the bronze star. Uh, I uh, came back to work at Wendy's. I almost doubled the size of his company. And to, you know, dad was never impressed. Dad always thought that there was something wrong with me. And I was just like, at some point, you'd be like, you're never going to make this fucker happy. So yeah. quit fucking trying. Just quit fucking trying to make him happy. Yeah. And you, you, you look, there are, there are things I know that make me happy. I'm just going to do those things. <laughs> and if dad doesn't like it, he can fuck himself. That's a good way to go about it. Yeah. So. 
Well, that, so yeah, that's it. So, so, so when he says things to me, it's just like, oh, I didn't do it right. I'm just like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> nice. Well, that, that that's the other way to take it, and I like it. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think that for the most part brings us current. You have two kids now. <laughs> yep, two kids live in Rochester. Well, I said, so the, there's one there's one last little change. Uh, after Dad sold the company, I had uh, I got this job offer. And so dad asked me what I was going to do. And I think he was still expecting me to like beg him to help, help me out because now, now, now it's truly up a Creek right now. And now, now I, I had to show him that I needed him again. Yeah. But I was like, no, I got this other job offer. I'm going to go, going to go be the CFO of this uh, Planet Fitness company. And he's like, and he goes, don't do that. Look, I'll, I'll sell you one. Of, I'll sell you this business and you could just be the owner. Uh, because, uh, so we, we owned, uh, at the time, I think it was 11 stores in Canada, and they weren't part of the overall sale because, you know, they're two different countries. Yeah. So Dad still owned these 11 stores that he wasn't really interested in running anymore. So, uh, and I think this is this was all happening around the time we started playing D&D with Adam again. Yeah. So so, so if, if you want to know, like, where my headspace was at while we were playing D&D with Adam, it was uh, Dad had just offered to sell me a company that I could buy that, that now because I had all the banking contacts from working with him, I could raise the money to buy. So I did. Um, and actually just, it, 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 it's a long process to buy out a company of that size. Uh, but I just finished the buyout uh, in October of last year. So I now oh, own, nice. it's now it's 13 stores in, in Canada. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I remember when I remember discussing this briefly, like when we would get together. Uh, so that's, yeah. So it's all finalized now, huh? Yeah, it's all finalized. So I own uh, I, I own all thirteen stores, and uh, you know, I, it's a lot easier to talk to Dad now because once again, he has no control in my life. Which <laughs> is, it's just it's great because the, I mean, there was a good seven year period there where well, let's see when did I come back? I came back to Dad twenty fourteen, so about a four year period, I guess. But even when I started with the Canadian business, it was Dad, Dad still owned most of the shares until I got to a point where I was able to buy majority of the shares so yeah good six years of kind of living under dad's thumb and it fucking sucks and yeah. uh but i much like joining the army to get notre dame i put up with it and I, now i've come out the other end with a business that i own myself outright and it's it's uh i mean it's going pretty well having a drive-through in the middle of a pandemic is, is definitely an asset <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. There's a level of like discipline and willpower that I that I admire because I don't have. Where you're like, all right, I got to put up with X for this amount of time in order to get Y. And when I think about stuff I like think, that, I'm like, I don't want to do X. Like, I, I think uh, I I think in some ways it's a willful blindness. You just tell yourself over and over again that this isn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> what it really is, like what 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 I remember at one point. I was in Iraq, I'm sleeping in this tent, and all these fucking bugs are biting me. And I'm just like, this isn't that bad. <laughs> oh, it was bad. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm not, now that I'm sitting here in this air-conditioned office, I'm like, what could they have possibly done to make it worse on me? I mean, could there have been gangs of people roaming around the country trying to kill me? I mean, there were. There were gangs of people roaming around the country trying to kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what the the military specializes in desensitizing you to that stuff. Though. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise, we do not have a military. 
Well, it's a you know you know the way they do it too is it's a it's it's all part of the same same mental strategy. It's they get you to focus on the procedure. Yeah. The procedures of patrols, the procedures of reloading ammo, the procedures of you know dispersing your platoon. You focus on all these things that you can control, and it kind of because you're so worried about all these little details, you kind of put out your mind that there's a bunch of people out there who are trying to murder you. Yeah. Well, I mean that's the same method uh, that's encouraged in like in any distress or or hostage or traumatic situation yeah. like focus on these little things that you can do that like will occupy your mind so your mind doesn't wander yeah. and think about all the crazy shit that's happening in the present right <laughs> yeah so the the army's had 250 years to perfect that strategy and they do it really well yeah like they're they're the, so when you're even when you're deployed especially when you're deployed there's no such thing as a day off anymore like you don't get weekends to just hang out yeah. every day you wake up and you work a 14 hour day and they now i understand they do that on purpose yeah. it's not because uh it's not because they actually need you to work that time to do stuff it's they're going to give you tasks to occupy your time so you don't think too much that's yeah i mean, I mean it works it makes sense and it works it's not great it's a little dehumanizing but yeah I, I, there's a that's always the weird moral switch right like do we focus on the dehumanization that creates the the greatest military superpower in the world or do we just go yeah. oh no that's fine we need this <laughs> i mean i i i uh, i would point out to folks in the military we're not as receptive to this idea as, as i am that like look our country was a great country before we had a giant military like if you look back before world war ii compared to other countries our size our military was tiny yeah. we were still great you don't need to be able to murder half the world or the entire world to be great. Like you just need to have healthy, happy, prosperous people who have the opportunity to grow in their lives and their jobs, and and uh, and you're going to be a great country. And you should have the minimum military necessary to accomplish that specific goal. Yeah, tell that to the <laughs> nuclear arms race. Uh, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Well, that's a great note to end it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I am now. I, I own a business. I've got a beautiful family who I love that, that wear me out, but I love them anyway. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I have a better relationship now with my dad, um, and uh, I've never had a bad relationship with my mom. I still talk to my older sister every now and again. We kind of reconnected a couple of years ago, uh, but uh, still talk to my younger sister, and that's, uh, that's it. Did and, you? Uh, I played it. And I play D&D &D again with my friends, which is the highlight of my week. Damn straight. Um, <laughs> did you ever... Uh, I, it's funny. I, ever, I talk to people that are like into psychology, and they're always like, you talk about sibling order a lot. And I'm like, I don't think I do. And this proves my point. I don't, because I forgot to ask you this. But like, as a middle child, did you ever, were you ever the peacemaker growing up? Still am. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm, the, I'm the only person... So my, my two sisters have basically, like, sister-divorced each other. Like, they don't talk to each other. They actively hate each other. And, you know, they... So, I, my, my mom calls me the Switzerland of the family because I stay neutral on all the conflicts. So, like, I talk to mom and I talk to dad. I talk to Sarah. I could hypothetically talk to Kelly. I just don't want to because I don't like her very much. But she would talk to me if I asked her. Yeah. You know, it's not, she, she has nothing against me. So... So I'm the, I, I'm the only person in my family who still talks to every member of the family. Okay, so you do fit the the mold of the peacemaker. <laughs> I do as the middle yeah, sibling. I, I, 
and I do have a lot of the other traits of middle siblings that are sort of stereotypical middle sibling traits. Well, thanks for giving me some time today. Yeah, of course. That's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's always fun to find out all the stuff you did in the years that we weren't hanging out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you again on Tuesday, all right? Yeah, for sure. All right, you just listened to my interview with my friend Mike, which is, you know, I love, I love, and we talked about this since I've talked to him, but it's it's so funny that he's like, all right, you need to do an act of service, and immediately, yeah, when he said that, I was like, oh, he means, you know, go volunteer somewhere, but nope, Mike joined the army for four years. <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's just crazy, and I know we touched on it at the end there, but. It really asks the question, like, what are you willing to sacrifice and for how long in order to get what you really want? Um, and that's that's huge, man. That's that's something I think all of us regularly ask ourselves, whether in public or private or just in your own head. So I hope you can ask yourself that today. Let me know what your answer is, because I know mine, and I don't think it's as much as I probably should. So thank you guys for listening. Uh Next week will be our monthly special episode, and we're about to get freaky. You'll know what that means eventually. Um, <laughs> I hope you guys have a great rest of your week, and thank you for listening. And please reach out with any feedback, comments, questions, concerns. Maybe you hate the sound of my voice, and you wish that I'd stop talking. Maybe you love it, and you want me to talk more. Maybe you're into ASMR. We can do that. Is that that's not ASMR. <laughs> Either way, reach out. Let me know how you guys are doing. I love talking to you. You can find me on social media at friend request pod, or you can email me at justinsfriendrequest at gmail.com. I will talk to you guys next week. I love you. Bye bye.